There's something in people that is naturally story-like. You're taking all this unformed, chaotic stuff and making sense out of it in story form. I learned that the world is not benign. The world around oneself is totally indifferent to one's existence. And, and sometimes it wants to hurt you, which means that fear can inhabit almost anything uh, because it is projected outward from the self. Darkness itself can be extraordinarily beautiful. It's full of richness. Because horror does deal with fearful, dark things, it also evokes all sorts of emotions that are very powerful. Now, horror, it seems to me, is right at home in that particular patch. The benefit of horror, that it can deal with these things when many, many other novels and novelists don't want to go there. It's the unpleasant side of human experience, but it's, in a way, the deepest side because I was able to write. I found a way through all this. And when we put the pencil down, it's with a feeling of having lived through something. film fans welcome back to a brand new episode of not to bomb podcast this is the podcast where we go back and talk about movies that bombed at the box office and also the critics didn't like brad we are back again recording so much content this week troy so much but it's good stuff i mean we we rarely get a chance to get together this often so when it happens we're going to take it but this oh of course yeah this is the regular like weekly episode right it is. This is episode, what, one something? It's <laughs> got three know. digits. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. What are we talking about tonight? Yeah. So we're talking about a film. It's called The Haunting of Julia. It also has another name called Full Circle. So we will get into all the nitty gritty about it because it is a rare film that we do that basically didn't release in the United States. It really? kind of so, did, sort of. Yeah. yeah, I guess Full Circle is the original title. The Haunting of Julia was the American title. The American right? title, yes, when they um, when they bought it, essentially. Yeah, so this has come as a request from somebody who's been listening, I, I guess, from the very beginning, right, Philip? I think so, yeah. Yeah, Philip is is an OG of the, of the show and has been asking us to do this. And if you uh, listen and interact with us as much as Philip does... We'll do whatever whatever movie you want us to do. So yeah, uh, when when is... when one of those people are like, "Hey, you need to talk about this film," we move the schedule around to talk yeah, about that movie for sure. And the 4K just came out on, on Shout, and I picked it up. You picked it up. Um, also, stay tuned to some of our social media posts this week. We are going to be giving away a copy of The Haunting of Julia. So Ooh, look for that. Yeah, we haven't done a giveaway for a while. Yeah. Yeah, well, so Philip is is one of those listeners that when he comes across a film that we've talked about, he's really good about sending us articles, information, videos uh, about that film, especially if he knows we're going to talk about it. He's 
he's actually one of the reasons why we come so well prepared on, on some of the films. He'll, he'll send us just <laughs> so much stuff and it's great. He does a lot of the research for us. He does. Yeah. He's, he's amazing. So I wanted to share an email that he had sent. Uh, so we had announced that we were finally talking about this last week. And when he listened to that episode, he, he wrote in, uh, and, and I just want to share this because movies, what I like about talking to him is you can, you can talk about film from a critical standpoint and talk about, you know, how good is the performance? What's the composition of the shots? You can, you can really dissect it from a technical level, but at the end of the day, you know, film will always uh, have some type of personal connection. And this one I think has a personal connection to Philip. So I just, I just want to read this email. So it says, hello, Brad and Troy. I heard your podcast this morning and I'm looking forward to your discussion on full circle the Haunting of Julia. It was a favorite since its horrible pan and scan VHS tape that made its way around the video stores in the 80s. As I've gotten older, it's taken a newer meaning with each viewing. As someone who's lost their spouse to a sudden heart attack 15 months ago, I can totally empathize with Julia's grief and the way it can play with one's mental health. It's a slow-burning story, but full of great atmosphere, music, and a knockout performance by Mia Farrow, and it's all built on Really a good psychological thriller when seen through the lens of grief and the trauma it causes to the psyche. It also has a fascinating story of how it came to being released after years of being caught in legal ambiguity about the negative and the rights to the film. Its only release was the 80s VHS tape until this year. A super fan of the film contacted producers, the director, and film companies and did much of the legwork to get this released after years of starting this project. I hope you enjoy it. Looking forward to the discussion. And what accompanied this was several different videos of really the behind the scenes of how this film got released. And really all the people and specifically one individual who really went to bat for this thing and worked on it for what I think over a decade to try and get somebody to finally to release like a proper version of this film and the legal battles and trying to find the negatives and, and who owned what, it, it's actually kind of fascinating. So a, a big shout out to Philip because this, this is exactly why I think we do the podcast is it's fun to talk about films, but I really enjoy the films that when you and I talk about it, there's always some kind of emotional connection to it. And I think it just adds that layer of, um, I don't know, interesting discussion to what is always a fun discussion, especially when you're talking about like the, the competency, the director, how good the performances are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you want to get into this? I'm, I'm really, I'm really dying to talk about this movie. With yeah. You. <laughs> yeah. Let's get into it. All right. I've, I've, I've got, I've got like, that's paper. I, I printed, I've got notes. You got notes. Okay. Well, lots of notes. let's, let's go back to 1977. Let's talk about when this thing got released. Okay. So we're going to go on a little journey here, Troy, okay. um, about the release. So essentially we kind of cobbled together a budget of $1.1 million thanks to some investors, both in Canada and the UK Mm -hmm. uh, to bankroll the film. So 1.1, I believe it's in Canadian dollars, which in today's money would be about 3.1 million uh, in the U S. Okay. So you know, you're looking at a, a very, very small budget film. Um, they had no release plan or no marketing budget to play with, which 
again, is one of those things where you're like, okay, we're going to make a film, but we have no idea how to market it. And we have no release. Uh, yeah. There wasn't plans. a distributor or anything for it. Yes, either, yeah. right? So, yeah. <clears throat> so they take it to cans. And so we usually, when you take a film to cans, you're looking to sell it. Um, and this was the first time that anyone was able to see it. And then going by the name full circle, um, it sold quite quickly to distributors in Australia and in the Netherlands with UK and France deals to follow. Uh, but the industry screenings attract lukewarm responses with the film as it was dismissed as too slow. Oh, okay. Okay, Get this Troy. Six minutes were shaved from the film's runtime with a tame love scene cut from the film. Oh, Uh, that was with Mia Farrow and uh, John Conti, which we'll get to those people later. Uh, the new and improved cut of Full Circle was offered as the UK entry into the San Sebastian Film Festival in September. That would be September of 77, uh, where it actually took Best Picture. Oh, wow. It went from being too slow yes. to six minutes out, and now it's Best Picture. And William Freakin had a film that year. Uh, Sergio Leone had one as well. And also, that is the year of David Lynch's Eraserhead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So beat those. Uh, <laughs> but that success in the festivals did not translate to um, sort of any sort of big buzz. Uh, the films debuted in Australia and the Netherlands in the February of 1978 was met with a critical kind of shrug of the shoulders and nothing at the box office. Um, it opens full circle opens in one London cinema in May of 78 and it takes in 5,200 pounds. Ooh, that's a far cry from the budget. Week, yeah. yeah, so not much. Uh, unsurprisingly, uh, the film was welcomed warmly in France. So I guess the French love a nice, um, moody, stylistic film. Yeah. Um, it was titled Le Cirque Infernal, and it received considerable bigger release there. Um, it had a pretty decent box office. There, uh, the rights to distribute Full Circle were purchased by Discovery Films for the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and immediately changed the title to The Haunting of Julia. Uh, feeling the original name did not make it abundantly clear to audience that it was a horror film. So I they tried to market I this. I do thing like as- the title, The Haunting of Julia, more than I like Full Circle. Yeah, and I didn't know what Full Circle was until I saw the film. And there's a part where they make a circle, mm-hmm. uh, kind of of. Uh, around this medium. Um, so commercially the haunting of Julia, uh, caused barely a ripple as it made its way across the U S finding itself out of step with young horror audience, you know, cause this was the time of slashers because it comes out in the U S in 1981. Um, yeah. so it kind of misses, uh, the, that late seventies run. And then now we're into the slashers and then, uh, basically, you will never find Mia Farrow or John Conti or anyone involved with this film ever speaking about it. Uh, it's not in any of their books or their memoirs. There's nothing like on TV of them speaking of it. So literally, it's it's one of those films that not many people know because even the people involved with it uh, did not seem to be uh, too thrilled to promote it. So. So, yeah, so not a whole lot uh, going on with this film. Troy, I did find an audience score on Rotten Tomatoes of 56%. Okay. Um, That's basically about it. 
I, I can't imagine a lot of people have seen this. I mean, no. So I was looking, the audience reviews mm-hmm. is around 250. Oh, that's really low. That's really low. I think uh Laquisha that we did mm-hmm. had like 10,000 plus. Okay. Yes. And, and I'll be honest. I don't know about you until Philip had really sent us an email about this and he was talking about this even before it was released. But as soon as I saw that uh, shop factory and I think under their label screen factory was, was doing this 4k version of it. I'm like, well, that, that's the movie Philip keeps talking about. Knew nothing about it. Never saw the trailer. Uh, and I, I don't even remember seeing it in the VHS stores when we were going, you know, back then. No. So I really do think this just doesn't have an audience, uh, to be quite honest, even among the horror community, to be quite honest. Yeah. It's, uh, it's one of those ones that, yeah, I, I hadn't heard of it until Philip kept, you know, kind of pushing it on us. And then I, I had always thought it was something else. I was like, Oh, this has to be something I just don't recognize. And then even then I was like, Oh, it's got Mia Farrow in it. I have no idea what this is. Yeah. Well, uh, let's, I guess, talk about the people who made it. It's, yeah. it's kind of um, got an interesting cast, but let's start with the, the, the people behind the camera. We'll start with director Richard Longcrane. Started directing television. That's where he found his footing. And leading up to this film, he had done, I guess it was a, not, I don't want to say a Spinal Tap ripoff because Spinal Tap came much later, but in 1975, he did a film called Slade in Flame. And it was sort of a rockumentary, but sort of sort of a made-up one, but very darker. And then he comes to do The Haunting of Julia and proceeds, you know, kind of going back and forth in television, ends up doing a TV movie in 79 called Secret Orchards. He has a really interesting career as he, as he goes along, because most of the things in his filmography don't pop out. But here are a couple of titles that I, I have seen that stuck out. He did the 1982 film, The Missionary, with Michael Palin. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I have not seen that. Okay. Uh, Richard III in 1995. I've seen that. Uh, Wimbledon. That's got, um, that's got uh, Ian McKellen, right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, Wimbledon in 2004 with Ugh. Kirsten Dunst and Paul Bettany. I hate that movie. And then Firewall in 2006 with Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford? Okay. That, mm, yeah. I think that's an okay action thriller, right? I it, believe it's, it was. Oh, it's okay. all right. It's a little man. Yeah. yeah. And did I say 92 or 82 on The Missionary? It was 82. Yeah. 82. Yeah, you said okay. 82, Okay, I good. The screenplay has a has a couple of different credits to it. We've got Dave Humphreys, who has a screenplay credit. He did lots of television. Um, from his film catalog, you might see something like Quadrophenia. From 1979. I think Criterion uh-huh. has that out. That Harry Bromley Davenport did the story adaptation. He did Whispers of Fear in 76, The Haunting of Julia in 77. And he wrote and directed Extro in 1982 and ended up directing, I think, the two sequels to it. Have, have you ever seen that film, sort of uh, sci-fi horror? I haven't. Yeah, we, we, we might talk about that sometime. Okay. I, yeah, it's it's weird. It, I just remember it being a very gooey, gross sci-fi okay. film. Okay. And the the film is based on a novel called Julia. I think the novel also went by full circle at some point, and it was written by Peter Straub. Now, that name is probably familiar for some horror fans. He wrote numerous horror and supernatural novels, including the one we're talking about, Julia. 
Ghost Story, which was also turned into a film, as well as The Talisman, which he co-wrote with Stephen King. And oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Straub has received a bunch of literary honors, um, such as the Bram Stoker Award, World Fantasy Award and International Horror Guild Award. And Julia was, in fact, his second published novel. I think he had been trying to do some other stories that were more grounded in drama. Somebody said, hey, why don't you try out horror movie or the the horror genre and see what you can come up with. And uh, when he did Julia, the publishers kind of ate it up, and, and that became his second published novel. I don't think his first one did so well. We've got Cinematography by Peter Hannon. That name should be familiar if you go all the way back to episode one, Children of Men. He was the director of photography second unit on that film. And he has, okay. he has a pretty long history of uh, cinematography credits. I know he worked on like 2001. Yeah. Sleepy Hollow as well. Yep. We've got music by Colin Towns, and uh, this actually was his first credit on IMDb as a composer. We'll wow, talk okay. about him in the in the production and development here in a second. So let's talk about the cast or the people in front of the the camera. Um, Mia Farrow. What what are your thoughts on her as an actress? Uh, I really like Mia Farrow. The Great Gatsby, obviously, Death on the Nile. Uh, did she? I know she's been nominated for. She won any award. I know she's been nominated for quite a few. Um, but yeah, I think Mia Farrow's great. Um what did I just see her in recently? She's um, she's still acting. I mean, she was in a yeah. Netflix series called The Watcher, um, that I think was from last year. Uh I I think there there's <laughs> there's gonna be a couple things that I think when Mia Farrow's name comes up, you're you're going to associate it with her. I think the most uh, was popular it Allen was world. <laughs> well, we'll get to there. But Rosemary's Baby, 1968. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, Roman Polanski's film. Uh, so that comes out in 68. Haunting of Julia comes out in 77. And then around early 1980, she starts a relationship with actor-director Woody Allen and ended up appearing in 13 of his uh, 14 movies that was released from 1980 to 1992. And the first movie that he worked with, um, or that she worked with him in, was A Midsummer Night's Sex Comedy. Yeah, that's the one, 1982. And and um, I I will say is, I mean, put all of the the scandal and everything aside, and look at it from just art. I I do think as good as Mia Farrow is in Rosemary's Baby. The other two films I associate her with that I really Supergirl. love, not Supergirl, <laughs> no. It's uh, Hannah and her sisters from 86, which I think she's fantastic in that. Yeah, where she plays the titular Hannah, yeah. And Another Woman, in another Woody Allen film from 1988, more of a drama. Um, I, I think she's just fantastic. And in a recent discussion we had with uh, a guest, Michelle Meek, she had mentioned Mia Farrow was in this film, 1999's Coming Soon, which I think we've added to the list, and it has a, we have, a young, young Ryan Reynolds in there. I have a hard time sometimes distinguishing between Woody Allen films, like which one is which, because um, I've only seen a lot of his stuff once, so it's hard for me. Like, I don't know. I don't. Another woman doesn't stand out to me. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be the first to say it. I've always liked his films uh, in a big way. The stuff that's come out in the controversy, it it does make it hard to go back and revisit some of this stuff. But at the same yeah. time, you, you got to take into account that there's more people that are associated with these hundreds of people 
And, yeah, thousands and it, sometimes. Yeah, and, and I think you can't really appreciate Mia Farrow's work until you look at some of those 13 films that she did with Woody Allen because, I mean, I think she's an amazing actress. And some of her best work, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, come under that uh, guise of being associated with that, you know, writer and director. But if you haven't seen Another Woman, it's it's really good. I, I mean, I, I will say. The other person that uh, when you when you see him again, you'll associate him with probably one of the most famous films of all time. But uh, Kier Dulia as Magnus Lofting. So he was Dr. Dave Bowman in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yep. Right. We get Tom Conti as Mark Berkeley. Uh, somewhat of a, of a notable actor around this time frame. He was in The Duelist in 77, obviously this one. He's also showed up in films like Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence from 83. He's also in a film that we kind of talked about, but not as the primary film. But uh, Paddington 2 Paddington from 20, two. Yeah. 2017. There you go. And then, He's got a face that you would recognize his face. He's it's very yeah. unique. And when you look at his filmography, you're like, oh, yeah, I totally remember this guy. Mm-hmm. I think he's the, ju- the judge or something in Paddington 2, if I remember correctly. He is. Okay. And then Judge Gerald, whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And then Jill Bennett as Lily Lofting. Uh, I, I just remember her face from the James Bond film For Your Eyes Only in 81. Uh, but, you know, and she's been working, too, and, and has a pretty long list or resume. I believe she was in Julius Caesar as well. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Okay. okay. Let's talk real quick about production and development. <laughs> so first of all, I, I do want to point out that if you are interested in this film and uh, after we talk about it, if you have any inkling to see it, I 100% um, and I don't know how you feel about this, Brad. So I'm just speaking for me. 100% would recommend the 4k Blu-ray combo that they have put out because the special features on this give a lot of backstory about the development um, and even sort of do a really nice new retrospective on the film too. tons I, of special I mean, features. Even if I hate a film, if you give me a good behind the scenes and a good making of, and a good sort of pseudo documentary about, about the film, I'll watch it. Like I, I am just fascinated about how the art form comes together that I could care less about the actual film. I just love the process. I'm kind of like Michael Mann in that way. I just like the process. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and it's, I don't know, it's a buy for me. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about our thoughts on the film, but I was really, I'm always impressed that you have these labels like shop factory that have come along and have really followed that criterion blueprint. And have put a lot of like love, attention and detail and bring a lot of people back to talk about the film. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I'm, <laughs> You know, I'm always curious on like what their what their margins are on like a release like this. Like, how many do they press? What exactly do? How many do they think they're going to sell against like how much work you put into it and all that? Is like is all this stuff just readily available or like you know who's putting it together? And in this case, there was people who were very passionate about the release and did a lot of that heavy lifting. But still, you just wonder about like how profitable is a release like this. I guess it's a good question. I've, I've never thought about that. If you think about Criterion, Arrow, Shout Factory, these boutique labels, uh, Vinegar Syndrome, they spend a lot of time curating these pieces, not just in the restoration of the film, but interviewing the directors, the stars, and everything else. There's There's got to be a cost associated with that. 
Oh yeah, yeah. So I I'm mean, wondering there's... what the budget is for like a, a robust special features. Yeah, do you on... get like fifty thousand dollars, you know, for extras or like I, I had no idea. That's a good question. You know, in 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 shout factories, like, do they sell five thousand of these? Like, I don't know. Sometimes you see vinegar syndrome and they they release three thousand. Or I just bought a Braxis from uh, who put that out? Wasn't that shout factory? It was Shop Factory. Yeah. It was limited to fifteen hundred. Well, as it so should be. So you're wondering, be. just like, it yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> hey, shut your mouths. Uh, but uh, yeah, you just wonder, like me as not. Oh no, no, no! I'm with that. you. You look at that and you yeah. go, "Well, how are they making money?" Yeah. Um, what's the more? You know, what's the overhead? What's yeah? yeah. Exactly. Well, let's talk about the production and development of this one. So, uh, Harry Bromley Davenport wrote the original screenplay adaptation of the novel, right? And the first title was called The Link. Dave Humphreys retooled Davenport's version and retitled it When the Wind Blows before the director, Richard Longcrane, came in and said, we're going to call it Full Circle. All those titles are atrocious. Yes, I agree. So we basically have everybody going to Los Angeles to look for a bankable actress because they thought they were going to sell it just based on getting sort of a, a no name attached to this, but really they, they couldn't find the right person, but they learned that Mia Farrow was performing in stage plays in London at the time. And so they came back to the United Kingdom, approached her backstage after performance and said, Hey, do you want to do this film? Now Mia Farrow was again, mostly working in theater around the mid to late seventies. And she was reluctant to appear in the film, but ultimately she was convinced by everybody to, to join it. And, and this is what's crazy. So you kind of talked about the budget is about $1.1 million Canadian. And the, the actual from, from start to finish, the creation of the film was seven weeks between November and December. Um, well, I guess it, it started November, or December of 1976. The, the production was rushed because the film had to be finished before the end of the tax year for its Canadian production company. And because of this, the screenplay, location scouting, and casting had to be completed within three weeks, which only gave them four weeks to shoot the film. And while they're shooting the film, Mia Farrow is starring in a stage production of Ivanhoe by the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, you already talked about the original cut and what had happened to it and how they trimmed it down. Um, there was also, I don't think you mentioned this, one of the most notable differences when they went back and retooled the film was the fate of her husband, Magnus. So, oh, yes, yeah, something happens to him in this version that did not happen to him in the, in the original cut. And when we share thoughts on the film, we'll, we'll probably talk about that. The, the other thing I thought was super interesting was composer Colin Towns' musical score for the film was actually written and recorded prior to the film ever being shot. So basically, he was given the screenplay, and he had to come up with a composition just based on reading the screenplay. Oof, that's tough. That's super tough. But yeah, I, this is a, just a weird film. It never caught with any audiences maybe outside of the french i guess uh what, what do you think brad is this just a case of marketing or just a film that was released at the wrong time 
I mean, what's your take on this? It's hard to say because it's such a small film. Like you would think having Mia Farrow on the film and being such a big horror icon from Rosemary's Rosemary's baby, you would think it would have some pull. Yeah. Um, but it's, um, you know, they, they had no plan for marketing, so they had no budgets. Um, you know, it seems like they're just scraping money together to put this thing out. It's just weird <clears throat> that there was literally no roadmap for it as they're, as they're kind of making it and, and gathering these funds. Cause like when you're doing things, you know, we're rushing for like tax breaks. So that's a problem. Right. We don't have any sort of marketing in, in the pipeline. Um, we don't have a distributor. We're taking it to all these festivals to, to get it sold. Um, we're selling it piecemeal um, to different countries, which is not necessarily rare. So it's rolling out at different times. Um, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It seemed like it was doomed from the start, right? Like it just, it never had a chance. And I'm not surprised when you don't really have a game plan, you kind of get what you pay for in a way. Okay. And that's definitely what happened here. At least in my opinion. Yeah. I, I like your thesis about what was going on with the state of, let's say scary movies about that time period. Because if you think about, um, I, I don't know, there, there's just, there wasn't really an appetite for this type of slow burn gothic horror, right? The, the only film I can think to come to mind that might be close would be 1980s The Changeling with George C. Scott, yeah. right? But if, yeah. you, if you think about the, the movies that were making money over there, and I think Changeling sort of had some modest success, mm-hmm. but it wasn't huge box office draw. But this is an era that's um, kind of post-exorcist for the U.S. audiences. You got Friday well, everything Halloween. changes in 1978, right? Like when Halloween comes out, we beeline for the slasher, and everyone's chasing that. Yeah, and it's not that slow, sort of heightened horror um, that we were used to in the 70s. It just completely changes, and the landscape changes. And this comes out three years later, and people aren't ready for. At least in the U.S., the appetite is for slasher films. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I can totally see this thing getting a cult following and appreciation, which I think it mm-hmm. did on the VHS market. But um, I don't know. I feel like it's one of those movies that was released in the wrong time period. And not having the marketing budget obviously killed it 100%. Oh, you, can, sure. you can put a name. You can put a really good name on a film, a good cast, good director, whatever it is. It could be a really good film. But if, if you can't market it, you're not going to make any money. Yeah, you don't have to spend millions and millions of dollars, but you have to spend some money so people know your film actually exists. It's important that people know it's out there. <laughs> I agree. Well, how about uh, we take a real quick break, and then we come back. I'm I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this one because uh, we haven't really texted much about this, and, and that always drives me crazy <laughs> when we can't talk about something. So stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to share our thoughts on The Haunting of Julia. <laughs> It's intermission, rise and stretch time. Time to refresh yourself and visit our snack bar. Got a yen for hot popcorn? Your favorite soft drinks are sparkling cold. The juicy Frank sizzling hot. There's delicious coffee freshly brewed and all kinds of ice cream and candy to tempt you. 
Showtime will be announced loud and clear to get you back to your car in time. So stretch your legs. Come to the snack bar now. When you buy a ticket to this movie, you're entitled to a full seat. But we guarantee you will only use the edge of it when you see Don't Look in the Basement. Welcome to Green Park Asylum for the incurably insane. <laughs> There's just one problem. Someone has mixed up all the files, and you can't tell the inmates from the doctors. <laughs> Don't look in the basement. Once you're locked inside, they're not going to let you leave alive. A different twist in terror from the maniacs who brought you the last house on the left. Again, they warn you. Caution. To avoid fainting. Keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Don't look in the basement. A special weekend late show <laughs> from Filmways Rated R. Do you love 80s and 90s music? You freaking should. Yeah, because if not, you have issues. But if you do then boy, do we have the podcast for you. The Mixtape. Yes, Matt, The Mixtape, where we chat about, whoa, 80s and 90s music mostly. Yeah, we sprinkle some other stuff in there too, though. A smattering of 70s and early 2000s. Throw in celebrity interviews, a lot of immature humor, and some actual content, and you have a hell of a good time. We do have a good time, don't we? Yes, we do. Check us out. Spotify, Pandora, Apple, iHeart, pretty much all the places you find podcasts. You can search for us, the Mixtape Podcast. That's four words. Find us, listen, subscribe, share, and stay Stay awesome. awesome. Okay, Brad, we're back. It's June. We're talking about spooky movies, which is weird. It's nice and sunny out, but yeah, hey, I'll, I'll take a spooky movie at any point in time. I agree, hundred percent. Yeah, especially someone that I haven't seen before. Now, Troy, I, I want to ask you this: Are yep. we going to talk about this and then maybe put a spoiler warning out because I don't think a lot of people have seen this? Because I have to talk about the last five minutes of this with you. Um, but hey, yeah, this one's tough. Uh, usually with these films, we really don't care about spoilers. And then we, we kind of, cause we were talking, we're talking about films that came out like 30 years ago, but this one came out a long time ago, but I don't know if people are curious on our discussion, they want to go see it. Maybe we'll, we'll mark it out. I'll mark it out. Okay. I got an idea. Let's do this. Let's just at a real high level. We'll, we'll do the watch skip plus thing. We're going to steal from them. Sorry, Jose and Justin. We'll, we'll just share our general thoughts and then, and then maybe we'll say right out of the gate, Hey, is it a bomb? Is it not a bomb? And then for me, I I really got to spoil the crap out of this thing to, to talk about it. But I I think we can talk about it on a very general level first. (laughs) That may be a 10 minute conversation. I don't know, but I'll, 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 
kick it over to you. Okay. So your your initial thoughts on this without any of the spoilers. So I think, and I've never heard him say this before, this has to be a film that Ty West loves. To me, this is something that I, I think Ty West like really, really enjoys. Like that slow burn. Like this and House of the Devil are like so close together. They're soulmates. To where, yeah. To where like it's really the last few minutes where it all comes together. Um, and I will say this is one of the most British films I've ever seen. <laughs> and um, yeah, but so <clears throat> it is slow and it, it is a lot of work to get through because you think, Oh, it's got this kid death at the very beginning, which I love a movie that could be like, it could just have stopped if they just knew the Heimlich maneuver. Like if they just knew how to properly okay. do the Heimlich real quick, the film would have been five minutes long. That was my first reaction. So we're not spoiling anything because in the first, it, it, what kicks off the plot is Mia Farrow loses a child and, yes. and that's what sets things in motion. So she, from what I understood because of the blood, she tries to do an emergency tracheotomy. Yes. Now it's 1977. Yes. Okay. So is like the Heimlich not invented that? Cause they're putting her, their hands in her mouth. And I'm like, that's the worst thing you can do. That's the first thing they tell you in parenting 101 is you don't put your hands in the mouth because you're just lodging that thing that's stuck in their throat even further. You have to get it out. But yeah. So uh, it, it, he, I looked it up cause it bothered me. It, it really did. Uh, the Heimlich maneuver was first introduced in 1974, Ooh. but it really hadn't gained any yeah, yeah. wide reception in in like 77. So 76, 77. So the two years that you know this is kind of made, the Heimlich maneuver was being discussed, but it wasn't widely circulated as hadn't gone across the pond yet. So they yeah, didn't know that it existed. Yeah, but but the how she treats her child at that moment would have actually been accurate for 1977 because the Heimlich maneuver in okay. and of itself wasn't, I'll, I'll let it slide, but it, it just seems irrational to me to think that like sticking your hands in someone's mouth while they're choking is like a good thing to do. Oh, I understand. Um, but I, Hey, let's, can, can we talk about that scene in that moment for a second? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it actually, the as it progresses because they're having breakfast and they're having this conversation they have a little back and forth and and it just slowly kind of goes oh she's coughing then this they're still having a conversation then it's those okay just quit faking kind of moments and then when they realize something's actually going on how that plays out is so intense it, it, it for me it sticks with you and it that, does ratchet up the tension quite a bit in, yeah. in the panic is real, right? Um, as a parent, we've all had those moments where your kid kind of seems like they're choking on something and, or maybe they are straight up and you've had to do the Heimlich maneuver. Mm-hmm. I luckily have not, but it does cause a lot of panic. And in me, I was feeling that panic as someone who was just like, just <laughs> hit her on the back, like do the Heimlich. But of course it, it doesn't exist. But when the, when the daughter starts to really like lay on the floor like my heart's starting to flutter. So it does a really good job of, of, of kind of building this conflict at the very beginning of the film. Um, 
And then she comes to the door when the, I guess the ambulance gets there and she's covered in blood and you're like, Oh, she tried to like do a tracheotomy and to get it out that way. And she botched it and technically killed her daughter. Yeah. She slit her daughter's throat more or less. Yeah. Yeah. yeah trying um, to get the, it was an apple that was lodged in her throat. A piece of yeah, apple. A piece of apple. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so from there it turns into sort of like trauma, the film. Mm-hmm. where she's doing a lot of searching for who she is after post the death of her daughter. She has a falling out with her husband, which I was getting vibes that that relationship was already kind of crumbling as when they were talking at the uh, table, it didn't seem like you they get, were. Did you get the impression? This is, this is the other thing. that's really subtle. It, you really have to pay attention at the beginning of the film even before the choking starts to understand that relationship, because to your point, it is tense, but he also hands her over something about the trust. Yeah. Like he wants, she's he, got the money, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Maybe that, uh, maybe that baby, that, that daughter was an anchor baby and it didn't work out. So, Oh, well so. it definitely was because I think that comes up later yeah. when they have yeah. a conversation or she's talking to his sister and says, Hey, things are on the ropes. The, the child was what was keeping it together and without the child and especially with yeah. what happened, there's, there's no reason to stick around. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. They, they, they mentioned something about a, a trust fund. Um, and, and so she has the money and, uh, yeah. So, so then it's just kind of a slow burn. And then there's like this weird sort of medium that comes into play and they introduce another sort of kid and, and that to me was a bit confusing because I was like, why? Because she buys another house and there's a a kid that's at that house. And, and to me, well, the simplest. Not, not a real kid. No, yeah, a ghost. Yes, there's a, a ghost. ghost kid. There's a ghost kid. Um, we, to, but don't, don't me, talk about the ghost kid because the ghost kid's a spoiler. Uh, well, I mean, okay. But you can't, anyway. you can't tell the identity of the ghost kid is what I'm saying. There's a ghost kid. We can say there's a ghost kid in the new house. That's it. Okay. That's all I say. Okay. Anyway. So, you know, it is a bit of a chore to get through. I I, I will say it was a difficult task for me not to pick up my phone while watching this. I had to pause it and put my phone on the charger on the uh, upstairs while I watched this in the, in my basement because I was really tempted every once in a while to, to look at the phone and, kind of you know pass the time that way because it just doesn't move at a pace that really seems to uh not penalize i don't want to say penalize the viewer but it's really really methodical i'll put it that way and uh there are moments that i think are really good uh the husband breaking into the house and, and kind of his fate and a few other things um but yeah i I liked it. I didn't love it. And I thought hearing about it, it was going to be one of those films that I was going to be like, Oh, I I love this thing. I just kind of liked it. And I think I just wanted there to be more. And I know that's not the type of film that it is. Um, But maybe if I give it another viewing next you know in october or something like that i'll I'll appreciate it a little bit more because my expectations won't be they'll be different because i'll 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 have known 
where to kind of settle in on this thing. Um, but I definitely can see how someone could really, really love this thing. And like, I'm not, I'm not saying like, Oh, people who, who love this are, are crazy. I can definitely see why people would champion this. Okay. So there, there's a central mystery here that has to do with the ghost kid and without going into detail, just general thoughts. Did did that mystery keep you going? I mean, were you interested in it at all? And and what did you think about its resolution without talking about the resolution? Well, the, the investigative side, I will say, that kind of got me where she's kind of doing, looking into what happened and, and kind of talking to these other people and just walking into strangers apartments and just having conversations with them. I'm like, <laughs> what are you even doing? Like, this is so dangerous. Um, but yeah, I, I will say the, the mystery does help. Um, but all in all, it's kind of not enough for me. Oh, to, to, to really ratchet up the tension for you is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like what there is n- there's mood. I'll say there's mood, but not tension. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Okay. A hundred percent. What, what about the performances like Mia Farrow specific? I mean, let's just face it. This is a Mia Farrow film. Yeah, she's, through in, and through. she's probably in every scene. Yes. And okay. I, I, I think the narrative is kind of told through her too, but mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't know if you agree with this. This movie's is, is made or broken by her performance. I, I think it's yes. intentional. Yes. In, in this case, I think it's made. Um, I think her performance is, is really solid. She just wears this look on her face of despair really, really well. And just like this kind of vacant sort of stare. And she does have moments of joy when she's talking to the one guy, uh, Conti's character. Mark. Um, yeah, Mark. But mm-hmm. like, besides that, like she's I don't know. Like you could tell the, the traumatic experience is like weighing on her and you could just look in her face that it, that it is. It's a, uh, it's a really sort of good, like face acting. If, 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 you know, <laughs> if you know what acting. I'm saying? Like you could just like see in her face, yeah. just the weight of this, of this post traumatic stress has, has really done to her. Okay. Uh, anything else at a very general level then? No, no. Okay. No, uh, right out of the gate. This movie starts as it's kind of going through the credits with, uh, the daughter sitting in a window playing with a creepy clown toy. So I'm spooked right there. Yep. Uh, but seriously, this is, this is a horror film that I don't know. Like if I were recommending this to somebody, I would, I would basically say, okay, real quick, what do you think about 1963's The Haunting? And and what do you think about 1980's The Changeling, right? So this is one of those films that atmosphere and having something that's more psychological in nature is at the core of its storytelling elements. See, I love both of those films. I love the 1963 Haunting and I love The Changeling. Yeah, the the 63 Haunting is like one of my favorite scary mm. movies of all time. And what's what's unique about those to a certain degree and and I think this one even more so 
it's muted in that there are no jump scares. And I do think that the film, this film either works or doesn't based on sort of three categories. You touched on one of them. Did, wait, did you think there was going to be jump? Cause there's like, my brain is so sort of wired for jump scares that like when I see a mirror or I see like someone opening something, I'm like, uh Oh, something's going to pop out. It's something's going to happen. Oh yeah, it is. I mean, after, after you watch as many scary movies, um, over time, I mean, jump scare has been around forever. Right. And so when you, when, when you get into a haunted house type film, you always think they're going to sprinkle some of them in. And the traditional jump scare is it's coming out of nowhere and there's that music cue to accompany mm-hmm. it, right? Yep. This has none of that. Uh, but it it really is based on its performances, its mood, and its imagery, yep. I, I think is what it all kind of boils down to. So I'll, I'll talk about the performances real quick. I think it's a great example of why Mia Farrow is one of the best actresses of her generation. I think some people would say that she's borrowing from her performance in Rosemary's baby or kind of copying Mm -hmm. that over a little bit. But I would argue she really does a great job of tapping into the grief of a mother who just lost their child. And she does a fantastic job of slowly letting sanity and reality sort of slip through her fingers because if you think about her exchanges with everybody towards the beginning, coming out of the hospital, she's fra- you know, she's very fragile and frazzled. But then you get to these sequences where she tells Mark that she's going to go to this place to kind of put another piece of the puzzle together that has to do with the ghost child. And Mark says, hey, I'll go with you. And she gets very standoffish about it and closed and then opens up and it's an example. If you look at that scene in comparison to her interaction with Mark at the beginning of the film, you, you can see even that relationship is kind of coming apart. Mm-hmm. And I really think Pharaoh just delivers a, a magnificent performance in this. And for that category alone, it, from a psychological thriller perspective, I think it's anchored to her performance and it's, it's really good. Yeah. I never got a grasp of what, Julia Mark's relationship was like, obviously they were friends, but it seemed like at one point in time, maybe they were more than friends because they definitely had like a flirty relationship. Yeah. I think, but I think I, it I, is that sort of guy, best friend that sits on the outside. We got and, Mark was friend zone. He got friend zoned. Um, but she loves him like a brother, <laughs> loves him like a brother. It's the brother she never had. Uh, yeah. Uh, and she ended up marrying the, the, the douchebag. The yeah. Well, he's good looking. <laughs> oh yeah. He's good looking, but my goodness, he's just, he's after her coin. Right. I mean, that's clear. Uh, so I, Hey, a plus on the performance in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about the mood. Cause you said there's mood, but not tension. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it has a creepy clown toy. So I'm going to say <laughs> it goes into the tension category right there. For Troy, Troy tension, yes. Troy tension. But they do a good job of having that creepy clown toy throughout the film. And that's all I'm going to say about it right now. It it has a constant, um, it, it is almost a- I hate wind-up toys. Wind-up toys are just so creepy. I do too. And, and this one has a payoff and it is a character in the film. Mm-hmm. And, and that's creepy. The other thing is I actually- really appreciate the lighting in this film. It it's pretty fantastic. 
you've got this alleyway sequence at night that she goes through. Oh yeah. And it looks like the shadows, I mean, you can't see everything. You can just see enough, but the shadows almost look alive in some of those sequences. And especially when they're kind of rummaging around in these parts of the house. And I love that certain scenes with Mia Farrow are covered in shadow. And I think from a visual representation, it, it does a good job of representing this duality within her personality that's forming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think that does it, the lighting does a good job of setting the mood. I think there's some pretty important and, and fantastic camera shots and composition in this film. The, one of them just stuck out to me and I, I I'm like, wow, that that's really good. Uh, and, and it, how it's filmed in the composition of the shot is telling you everything about what's going on in this relationship and with her. But do you remember that scene? Mark is driving the truck and the camera's on him and he's talking to Julia because she's next to him, but you're seeing her reflection in this old tilted mirror. Mirror, yeah. There's yeah. a lot of mirror shots in this. Yeah, there is. And I think it's a neat shot, but the way it's set up, there's something kind of unsettling about it, um, which which I like that. And again, visually, they're, they're kind of letting you in on sort of what's going on with the relationship and also, I think, what's going on with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the lighting, that composition, it all comes together to make this modern Gothic mood. Yeah. So I've been, I've been watching the Batman, the animated series with max Yeah, and it like straight up is like, like Batman, the animated series, the way they just do those hard shadows and and kind of stuff in this. Yeah. It's very, very that. Yeah. And I, and I love it. And, and here's the thing with, with the lighting and with those composition, I think it does a good job of setting a mood because there are a couple of things that happen that aren't jump scares, but you react like they are. And a good example is towards the beginning, Julia is coming around the corner up the stairs and Mark is standing there with the mirror and he startles her and you're startled too as the viewer. Uh, and, and there's no stinger music. There's nothing. It's just a natural two people running into each other but after they're hearing some like creepy sounds or doing something. And again, I think the lighting, the camera work and just that Gothic feel when that happens, it acts as a natural jump scare and it, and it got me. And there are a couple of those moments in there. Yeah. And, and you already said it. I mean, there is so much imagery in here to unpack, especially with the mirrors and stuff like that, um, that I, that I really like it. Um, so that I, I, again, will probably give it high marks in the mood piece. So performance is a mood. And the last thing is imagery. I don't want to talk about the imagery because the, in order to talk about the imagery, I think we got to spoil the film. Okay. Um, what about the other music, the synth sort of score underneath and all that stuff? I, I think it's okay. Like town town's music fits it, but it doesn't stand out. Like I, 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 I didn't think it fit very well. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's okay. It's passable. When I read that fact that he wrote the music when he did the screenplay, um, versus like seeing the film as yep. maybe a composer might traditionally makes sense, do, right? It it kind of makes sense where you go, okay, he he made a um, a moody score, but I think a a, a better score might have elevated the mood mm-hmm. a little bit. So I, yeah. I really think the mood comes from the lighting and the camera work and the composition more so than the music and especially the performances. I think Mia Farrow becoming unhinged through the film adds to that mood and that Gothic feel. Absolutely. 
But that's all I want to say about it because everything else I have to say, I think we got to spoil it. So do we, do we just like talk about what, and then we get into spoilers, like say, Hey, go get this. Yeah. Or don't get this. And yeah. let's, let's go to the spoilers. All right. But we can't say, would you skip it or watch it? Cause somebody else is using that one. So we'll stick with yeah. that. So Brad <laughs> is the hunting of Julia full circle. Is, is it a bomb? Um, uh, I would say no, because it is a, it is a think piece on how to create mood in a film where things do happen. Like, I don't want to sell it. It's like nothing happens in this. Like it's not that kind of Ty West film, but it's definitely going to test you and your patience. And, and a part of me thinks, well, that's, part of what this film is about is, you know, is, is kind of testing you as the viewer. Um, so I will say it's not a bomb because I definitely think people should seek it out and, and, and definitely check it out. Cause I think it's different enough to where it needs to be seen. Okay. I just wish, I just wish it was like 25% better. <laughs> is what would, what would fill that 25% gap? Just- Probably the music. The music? I, th- I thought the music really was the weak link when you're trying to build mood. And then like, there's like this weird synthy sort of weird score underneath it. It just really stood out to me. Like music is one of those things when it's good. It really, sometimes you don't hear it because yeah. it just fits so well. This, I heard the music and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm hearing the music too much. It's taking me out of the film. Okay. All right. But it's not a bomb. Not a bomb. I'm I'm with you, but I I'm I love it a lot more than I think you did. Mm-hmm. I I do think there's tension within that mood. I think the performances are fantastic. We're gonna talk about the imagery, and I, I think that's where it really gets me. And I, I don't know, I think overall, this is a spooky atmospheric film. It feels like cuddling up with a good ghost story on a fall night. It, it has that very gothic feel to it. I think mm-hmm. all of that works. And from a story perspective, like the story they're telling in this movie, I think it's really unique. It's really freaking twisted too. <laughs> when, when, we, when you see this film and you take a step back and you go, wait a second. So point A happens, then it takes us to B, C, D, and then you get to the end and you're like, oh my God, that's really messed up. Um, and I, I think... In, in comparison to most ghost stories and, and hauntings or possessions, whatever you want, it's all about you trying to figure out the haunting, right? This mm-hmm. one's very unique. And I think The Haunting of Julia is probably the most apt, appropriate title because it's not about maybe some, someone trying to figure out the haunting as they are trying to embrace it because they feel that's how they can deal with their child's death. And it's really dark. Yeah. Full disclosure. I'm, I'm going to probably not understand this film as, as well as you do. Oh, really? So I might need you to kind of walk me along what's truly going on. Okay. So we're both saying, watch it. Mm-hmm. Don't miss out on this. If you like, <laughs> we can't movies, say that that's, that's copyrighted somewhere else. You can't, oh, say yeah, you can't say, watch it. We're saying it's, it's not, not a, bomb. a bomb. It's not a bomb. Uh, I would even go so far as to say, get the 4K. If if you're looking for a scary movie to buy, 
put this on the top of your list. I think it's good. I don't know. Okay. You are. Would, would you? I mean, I would definitely say check it out for okay. sure. All right. And I mean, to be honest with you, if you want to watch it, you kind of have to buy it because it's impossible to find anywhere else. Yeah, that's true. And I, hey, look, and I have no choice. I'm I'm all about throwing like some cash to these folks who brought this to the light of day. Oh yeah, for sure. Because this think about like how many other movies, prod, but yeah, 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 are sitting out there that just need this kind of treatment. So, okay, can we spoil like the shit out of this movie? Yeah. So so walk me through. So <clears throat> we have our child is we killed our child by trying to save her life. Okay. Yes. We are then separated. Yes. I buy a house. You buy a house. Okay. This house has its own separate ghost child. Yes. Okay. To me, if you want to do economic storytelling, introducing a second child when you've already killed your child is a lot, but there's a reason for it, right? Right. Okay. So walk me through this part. Walk you through the part. Okay. So... And this is just my take on it. All right. Yeah. Okay. The, the question, the big question that this film I think asks is, are the events that occurring throughout this film, is it a haunting slash possession or or trauma? Or is it the result of a mother who can't deal with her trauma and is murdering people around her yeah so that's how i took it yep so it's supposed to be ambiguous but when you when you walk through the plot points i i i think there's it, it's super interesting so here's here's and, a, and the, and the reason why i say that is the turtle scene yes okay. <laughs> so the the film and i've really had a long time to think about this and and i'm i'm dying to go back and watch it again uh, and even Philip and I had a really good exchange and, and I was like, Hey, how important is this scene? Cause this sticks out. And then he was like, well, I think it means this. And so we oh, had, but, okay. also, Hey, Philip, uh, when you suggest the film, Hey, heads up next time, just be like, Hey, there's kid death in here. And there's other <laughs> dramatic things. <laughs> yeah, a little well, heads up next time. Uh, okay. Um, it's kind of heavy. So it is. And, and the, the first, the film starts with this shocking event, right? And, and again, we talked about Heimlich maneuver really wasn't being circulated around that time period. Um, so her reactions really, uh, it's realistic and the results are gruesome. She comes out of a mental institution because the husband is like, I'll take care of her. And what he really wants to take care of is, is the trust check? fund. Right. And she's like, okay, the only way I can deal with this is to get away from him. And when she gets into this house, she finds the room with all of those toys. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you you come to find out that um, through the seance, which she she the sister of her husband is like, hey, we can cheer you up, and we'll bring some people over, and we're gonna have a seance to talk with dead people, which is the worst idea for somebody who just lost yeah. their child, right? Yep, yep. So she doesn't participate in the seance. Don't ever do that. Yeah, Troy. Her and Mark. Are, I, I know. Yeah. Her and Mark are sitting on the side. But it's very interesting because Mark is asking her these questions because Mark really just doesn't believe in this, right? And and even she's asking some questions. And one of the important questions is, oh, if you do the seance, does that mean a ghost is going to come in and knock things over, et cetera? And they're like, oh, no, no, no. Ghosts can't do anything. They need a body. Mm-hmm. Um, and somebody who's open 
to let that ghost in to do something. So that is supposed to set sort of the stage that her trauma of losing a child makes her vulnerable and open to the possession mm-hmm. of a child, right? Okay. And so as the movie goes on, now you get into the investigative part where Julia is trying to find out what is going on with this vision that the medium saw that has her just totally panicked and it has to do with the death of a boy, right? And so you're first led to believe that the child that Julia might be open to or, or is trying to track down the mystery of was the boy of that house. As the story unfolds, and, and what, what happens is she's in the park taking pictures of children. and Don't do that. Don't go to the park and take pictures of children that aren't your kids. Yeah, not, not today. But what ends up happening is she thinks she sees a vision of her daughter, goes over there. It's not theirs. Mess around in the sand. And then the mother comes up. It's like, what are you doing? Next thing you know, she's holding a dead turtle because she gutted it. But she doesn't remember doing that. But she did. Troy, I want to do one thing in my life and one thing only. Yeah. I want to tell someone to piss off. <laughs> I just want I just want something to happen. To I just want to say peace off. Yeah, you can do it to me anytime you want in public. Okay. Um, so then she's all freaked out about that. As the story goes, she starts piecing this together that in fact the child of the house is not the little boy that died. It's a girl. And this girl was evil. Just plain evil. And as she starts to put the pieces together, the people that are giving her the pieces or, or the pieces of information that affect them, they start to die as well, Mm -hmm. which then opens up the question of, is this the possessed girl that's acting through her to get back at all of these people who turned her in for being evil? Because as the story goes, you have a little girl who had this control or influence over these boys And there was a German boy that was playing in the playground and she convinces all these other boys to basically beat him up and hold him on the ground while she murders him and then starts to mutilate his body. And they all helped her do that. So she like chokes him, right? Like she puts like dirt and stuff in his mouth and and then starts essentially mutilating his body. Yeah. So what ends up happening is the, the boys that are left, which isn't like a farce, Far stretch from how Julia's daughter dies. Lily. Is it Lily? Is that her name? Lily? I, I think so. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. Because like she chokes, is and kind of mutilated in a way. Cuts yeah. her. Yep. Yeah. So the, the deaths are kind of similar to what happens to the mm-hmm. boy. But in this case, she did that to her daughter. Julia did it to this, this German boy on a playground. And as she goes to meet the boys that are still alive... The when she finds out, as an example, the one boy who goes, "Oh yeah, I told her mom about it," and um, I, I I hope Julia never knows that I told. Well, as soon as that information is revealed, he dies, and then she finds out that the mom is still alive, <laughs> and then when she goes to see the mom, the mom's like, "Oh yeah, I found out what my daughter did to that German boy," and they ended up pinning it on some other uh, person and executed him. But when she found out that you know her daughter is this this pure evil person, she kills her daughter, and then as soon as she learns that information, the mother dies. Um, yeah, a heart attack, right? Yeah, a- after yeah. after you know Mia Farrow turns Julie turns around and just gives her like this ghost stare or whatever. Um, and then you go to the end of the film, 
And by this point, she starts talking about having to save the kid. And you're like, oh, is, is she talking about like trying to save the child, like the little German boy and bring, you know, that to closure? No, she's trying to save the evil girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, apparently she has this connection with her. So to your point, she killed her daughter, slit her throat. This woman kind of kills this German boy in the same way. And so there's some relationship that they end up building. And uh, the the movie ends with, I think, one of the, just the, the craziest image I've seen in a long time with her, you know, embracing this ghost. And then it turns on you. And the next thing you know, she's holding that monkey with this, or not the clown with the clown. symbols. Her throat has been cut. She used the symbols to, to cut her throat. And so the blood is kind of bubbling out and the credits are rolling and you're watching her die slowly in this chair. I mean, it's one of those images that you're like, yeah, I need therapy now. Um, And it's so dark because it's basically about a mother who loses her child and then goes into a haunted house, becomes enamored by this evil ghost and embraces everything about this evil ghost and then gets revenge for this evil ghost. Mm -hmm. It's really dark and twisted. But then the question is, they play with perception in some of the scenes. Did she murder her husband? I mean, she's over at Mark's place, so you think it's something supernatural, but they never really show you, right? Yep. Um, And then did Mark ends up dying. The question is, did did she murder Mark, or was that the ghost? So it's very ambiguous, and the film likes to toy with is this really happening um, in that she is losing her mind and killing all these people? Or uh, is is this her being haunted and possessed by this evil spirit and she's totally embraced it and uh, is is out there, you know, committing these things on, on behalf of, of the child? And what I like about this film the most is both of those things are true at the same time. You could read this as her trauma yeah. has caused her to create this image of this little, this whole thing. And she's out killing these people just because, or it works as a haunting story where she is, you know, finding out about this killing and, and doing the investigative part. Both of those things are true at the same time. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. I mean, the, and it does a good job of letting you feel that you're right. If you believe this one and you're right, if you believe the other thing, a hundred percent. And and what I love about the screenplay is even before you get to that sequence where the the one man is saying, yeah, when we were kids, this is what she made us do. And sort of as a trial run, we all had to go kill an animal. And then all of a sudden, as he's talking about this, you're like, oh, wait a minute. She just mutilated this turtle, turtle in the park. Yeah. So you get a sense of, okay, well, in fact, did was, was this girl already taking possession of Julia at that time? time period. And that was her initiation because then all the murders start after that, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah, that's like the, well, I mean, it's not the true turning point of the film, but like the turning point of the film is like five minutes into it. But then there's another turning point with killing the turtle. Cause then after that, it's, it's their body count does get a little bit higher. Yeah. But it makes sense in comparison to the story that kind of comes back at the end when mm-hmm. you get that confession and goes, Oh yeah, we, we helped her kill this little kid. But even before that, she said, well, I got to test you out, kill an animal. And you're like, well, wait a second. Now, the events that unfolded in that park with them killing the, the little German boy, 
you're seeing them unfold in today's environment and everything's being acted out through Julia. Yeah. And to your point, is it her? Is is she just crazy with grief and it's led to this and she's and and that's the interesting thing about it is these events and those people don't die until Mia Farrow's character Julia gets that information. Mm-hmm. So it really plays nicely into that is she committing these murders out of grief and and just losing her sanity? Or is this really a haunting slash possession thing? Or to your point, it could be both. Maybe mm-hmm. she did kill Mark, but also the ghost killed her husband. And both events and, and both details are true to make out this this very nihilistic ending. I mean, yeah. you, you would think that a mother would be more concerned about this this boy who just happened to be German after the war and you know, was murdered by other children. You'd think she'd have sympathy for him. No, she has sympathy for the, the little girl that murdered the boy. That's, yeah. Cause there's a, that's messed I mean, up I, after imagine this Troy. after world yeah. war two, there's a lot of prejudice against German people <laughs> I know. Uh, in the, in, in, in England there. So yeah. Um, yeah, it really works as like a, this nihilistic sort of view on things. And I like it as a character study on trauma. Like it, it really works that way. And it, it really sort of gets you thinking about traumatic experiences and, and thinking about stuff like that. It's a, it's a, it was a little bit more rough of a watch than I had anticipated. Cause once the, the credits are rolling and like blood is bubbling out of her neck, you're like, wow, okay. They really went for it. Um, and it makes sort of the slow pacing and deliberate pacing really pay off. Um, yeah, I I hate using the word slow on this one because I I like deliberate. It has a yeah, deliberate pace yeah. to it, but it could be deliberately slow. Yeah, but I found it fascinating. I, I really did. And mm-hmm. and again, I go back to but Mia. if you don't, it's gonna crawl. Sure. If if you yeah. can't get invested in, I would say it this way: if you can't get invested into Mia Farrow's performance. Mm-hmm. then yeah, it's going to be painful. You, you start with the shocking incident and I think you, you end with what happens to be like a, a banger of an ending. Like you're not going to forget that one, but you, you have to be invested in her and you almost, you, you have to sympathize with her because what happens is for, let's say two thirds of the film, you just kind of feel sorry for her. And you want, you are watching as an outsider and going, man, I hope she pulls out of this, out of this. And then you get into the third act. And when you start putting the pieces together that, man, I don't know if I have sympathy for her because she's a freaking murderer and who she's siding with at the end of the day, you're like, oh my gosh, I I spent this whole time having sympathy for this character and feeling bad for her situation or breakdown. And, um, I honestly thought for a good chunk of the film, she's trying to solve the mystery of this boy's murder. And then when you come to the realization that, okay, I've just been watching a film where she's been drawn closer and closer and sympathizing with this evil little girl. Yeah. And and you're going, Oh my goodness. I, I, it, it, you picked the wrong team. You did. (laughs) And I love that because it just, it, it threw me for a loop, but I was invested in the story is invested in the mood, the gothic atmosphere. So I, I think it's very deliberate, but I love the callbacks um, mm-hmm. from a story perspective that as you start 
And, and that's why I think it makes a great multiple viewings because you'll go back and now that you've seen it, you can start kind of piecing it apart um, and even making a case for, is it her versus the ghost kind of thing? Well, and, and I watched this a few nights ago and I've thought about the film every day since I've seen it. Yeah. And, and see, that's why I think I'm kind of taken aback by your reaction of just saying, that's eh, okay. I mean, to me, if a movie sticks with you for that long, it, it's gotta be in that B plus a minus carrot. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know though. I, 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 yeah, I think it was just mostly the music. I kind of hated the music. Oh boy. Was it, was yeah. it, <laughs> it wasn't as bad as some of the music that we've had to endure lately. No. Um, okay. No. All right. No. Okay. I, I'll, I'll give you that. I mean, do you, do you think if they replace the score that this would all of a sudden just be like an instant classic? I think so. Like, honestly, I think if you take out the music and stuff and redo it and, and have someone who could, who could put together, um, some solid tracks and it, it would definitely heighten it for me, but it's it just, the music just seems so out of place. Wow. Okay. It's baffling. Yeah. I just, I thought it was meh. I mean, yeah. it didn't, it didn't, I guess, ruin my watching experience, but okay. I can see that. If you don't like a soundtrack and if it's constantly playing, it's really going to take you yeah, out of it, right? Yeah. Okay. No, I mean, does I I assume you had the same sort of progression in storytelling that I just explained, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I don't know why you would think that you, we wouldn't be on the same page for it. I was just making sure. Sometimes you know you're you're the intellectual one, so I'm I the intellectual sure. one. <laughs> no, I just I I don't know. I I really got into this thing. I just kind of let it, you know, swallow me up in it in its mood, um, its tension. I, I, I hate using the word thrilling because I think it's just tense. It does a really good job of keeping you on the edge. And then, um, man, I'm telling you, the last <laughs> last 15 minutes, it when it really flips the script and you understand what you've just been watching, um, you're like, oh man, that I, I didn't expect. When an that. old it's lady a, has a heart attack, you're like, wow, okay. it's a gut punch, man. <laughs> When the dude gets electrocuted, taking a bath, I'm like, maybe shouldn't have a light plugged in, like right above your bath. That's probably on you there, Mark. I feel like Mark was going to get electrocuted at any point, regardless of if she did it or ghost, because the amount of crap he had in his apartment, he was just going to trip and get electrocuted. And with that honker that he has, that nose, he's definitely going to knock it (laughs) (laughs) We're nose shaming now. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, uh, any other thoughts on this one? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think we need to reiterate to do yourself a favor and at least check it out. And if you don't like the movie, all the stuff that comes with the shout factory stuff is we're not sponsored by shout factory or anything like that. We're just happy that they put out a, a cool release, but it's got a bunch of stuff on the disc that is worth watching as well. Yeah, I, I concur a, a thousand percent. I, I, th- I've, I've really enjoyed exploring this and, and I was, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm super grateful when somebody comes across, uh, the table and, and just says, Hey, you probably never seen this film. Check it out. And, uh, I, I'm telling you what, whatever Philip sends our way, I'm, I'm super interested. So yeah. he's got street cred now. Cool. Yeah. Uh, okay. Should, should we talk about some of the other stuff that we're doing this week, I guess, or yeah, we have a lot of stuff lined up. So <clears throat> You want to talk about yesterday? <laughs> it was yesterday. By the time it? you, by the time you hear this episode, it'll be out in your normal feed. 
But uh, yeah, Troy and I had a professor, an author, a filmmaker, a TED talker on yeah. our podcast. Uh, yeah. Michelle, go ahead. Oh, no, no. Was, uh, so I, I guess a little background. Uh, Brad and I will get some random emails. And most of the time it's just delete. <laughs> that we get a lot of <laughs> We get a lot. So one just came across and I think it both caught us off guard. But uh, Michelle Meek, who Brad had just said is an author, and, and by author, I mean books, articles, over 200 plus articles, and, and we're talking like um, major publications. You, you have probably seen her name. Let's just put it that way. And um, she is a professor and a filmmaker, and she just had a book recently come out in April called Consent Culture and Teen Films, Adolescent Sexuality in U.S. Movies. And this is the type of email that Brad and I just don't expect to ever get, but she had reached out to us and said, Hey, like the podcast, I was wondering if you would be interested in sort of collaborating on doing an episode on, um, you know, anything that has to do with some of the topics that were in the book. And so, you know, we responded back and we're like, Hey, are, are you sure you got the right podcast? And it was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we had a, we had a fantastic exchange and Michelle immediately came up with like three or four different ideas. Brad and I really spent a whole evening like debating which one we wanted to do because they were all fantastic ideas. And what we decided to do was, um, talk about gender swapping teen comedies and specifically two that Michelle had mentioned. And it was 1985's just one of the guys. And a sequel we had no idea existed with Corey Haim called Just One of the Girls that came out in 1993. So I would probably classify, we, we, we labeled that episode as like a special edition, but um, it felt like a really engaging, interesting conversation on one aspect of gender studies in film. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got to say, Michelle, Meek just just blew me away in terms of her knowledge on the history of film and how you can use that as sort of a, uh, I don't know, a view of what was going on with adolescence or even society as a whole when it came to uh, sexual identity, um, what was going on in the U.S., et cetera. So I don't know about you, Brad, but I, I do feel like we took a college course yesterday and it was super cool. <laughs> yeah, and like we immediately had great chemistry and it just all came together and i'm super proud of that 90 minutes that we put together it was uh it flew yeah and, and immediately after we were done we she was like we have to do this again and we were like yes of course we do it, it just it just all comes together when you kind of have a rapport with somebody and it clicks like it just feels really good and it's good you know i love all of our guests um but having a different perspective on some things is really nice and having a female perspective on on film also really helps because there's she said some things that i never would have even thought about that uh that really kind of put things in perspective and i think you know listening to people with different backgrounds and different um sort of views on things really helps and uh yeah i learned a lot, i learned a lot in that 90 minutes to be honest with you i did too and and i read her book uh leading up to uh the interview and i gotta say it was fantastic because each chapter, I mean, the first chapter out of the gate, and I think I, I told her this yesterday, I mean, just like a movie, you want to grab somebody's attention. That first chapter was fantastic in going through sort of like um, the history of film and censorship and how uh, children were kind of used right out of the gate to 
um, control censorship within the film industry. And it's super fascinating. And then as you go through each chapter, she talks about different decades in film and different topics. And uh, there were so many different perspectives that I would have never considered until she brought it up and then would list out examples. And you're like, oh my gosh, I, I never would have looked at that film in that perspective. And um, it was one of the best reads I've had in a while. Yeah. It just makes you wonder why she reached out to our dumbasses, but you know, I don't know, man. Um, (laughs) Here we are. It's got to be you. It definitely wasn't me. Um, Or I don't don't know. Scientology works. I don't know. No, she's. I mean, we did get a lot of buzz from Laquisha, (laughs) so maybe Laquisha really pushed our podcast. So I don't know. You think so? Oh yes. Let me tell you, buddy. (laughs) All right. No, I. Hey, look, it was cool. However, it happened. Yeah, it happened. It happened. It was amazing. Um, Listen to that episode. Tell us what you think of it. We're excited. She's already picked out a film she wants to come back and talk about. And then we're also talking about doing another one of those special episodes because it it was really cool. Yep. Yeah. And so something I'm not so thrilled about, Troy, (laughs) is uh, in a few days we'll be recording uh, the June episode of breaking Brad. And that one is the 2003 musical romantic comedy. Is it a comedy? Just, is it a comedy? Uh, uh, yeah, it's a, okay. uh, it's tragic of some kind. Uh, it's from Justin to Kelly pan and scan. Uh, whatever it is. I have to, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, I'm a grown man who got this uh, on DVD mailed to my house. Yeah, I, I I have a copy too as well. The mm-hmm. special edition. Yep. Um, I am not excited to talk about that film with you. <laughs> have you watched it yet? I did. Mm. I did. Uh, mm. It broke Troy. Let's just say that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But no, that, that'll be a fun discussion because we have somebody uh, coming to represent that film and they love it. 81 <laughs> minutes long. And it, it feels like 180. Yeah. Like <laughs> uh okay what what podcast should everybody be listening to outside of ours yeah so we got gentleman's guide to midnight cinema watch skip plus which we kind of stole their format tonight you're welcome guys the vhs files night of the living podcast the backlook cinema which is on a little break right now but zoe will be back the mixtape podcast and raiders of the podcast check all those people out please it is a dog eat dog world out here in the podcasting uh, landscape. And uh, if you can check anyone out, check out those people. And hey, if uh, if you like them, let them know. Yeah, if you like us, you know, let us know. Send us yeah. some feedback. Leave us a review. We would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and share it with everybody because um, we would like to see the community grow. And we want more people to recommend movies like The Haunting of Julia. The only way we can get that is to to get more people to listen. Brad, uh, it's my pick next week. And um, I think I picked another one that comes from Shop Factory. They did a special edition of. They did. Yes, you're correct. I own own this one. (laughs) So you want to talk about what we're doing next week? (sighs) Okay. So, Troy, we have arguably like three of the funniest people of all time and one of the most gorgeous women. And she's a great actress as well. Oh, absolutely. So you have Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, John Candy. Demi Moore. That's like a murderer's row of actors, but they came together to make this film called Nothing But Trouble from 1991, directed by Dan Aykroyd, screenplay by Dan Aykroyd, story by Peter Aykroyd, 
Yeah. It is it is a film. I will tell you that right now. This is a vanity project if you've ever seen one. Nah. that's my day there you go uh no i i'm excited to talk about this i i i love these type of films because anytime you get somebody who has that much excuse me total control i i mean they they usually don't end up to be like epic masterpieces it's it's usually an interesting car crash i think we can go ahead and and uh tip our hat as they say and say this this should be an interesting car crash to watch now the question is is it entertaining enough we'll get there (laughs) we'll get there tune in next week as they say that's right well i don't know if you're listening in the morning the afternoon or evening thanks for downloading the episode uh and listening to our thoughts on the haunting of julia brad and i both agree you should see it hopefully you stopped at the appropriate place and didn't listen to the spoilers and you went and watched it and then came back to listen to spoilers but again philip thank you for recommending that uh send us some more of your selections so we can add them to the list and uh, come back next week for nothing but trouble don't lose your head <laughs>